Who's your best friend? That's what someone asked me recently. And I, uh, being the good pastor that I am, said, Jesus. And uh, they rolled their eyes at me, as some are doing right now around the room. And they said, yeah, but really, come on, yeah, okay, pastor boy, we know that Jesus is the right answer, but who really is your best friend? Uh, so I said, well, Lindsay, my, my wife. And again, their eyes were rolled, and they said, no, but I mean a normal best friend. Not that Lindsay is abnormal, but you know what I mean. Uh, so there began a wee discussion with this person on the different types of friendships in the different seasons of life. Friendship is a fascinating thing. Uh, ever present as it, as it is, as a reality through our life, it, it shifts and changes. And uh, maybe for many of us, our initial understanding of friendship was perhaps established on the church playground, perhaps with as much heartache as joy. Maybe some of you can remember someone saying to you, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Or more joyfully, someone come and say, can we be friends? And that invitation to connection and, and good times together. Uh, while over the years things change, friendship can still be in our lives an area of great joy, but also great struggle. Friends will at times let us down. And perhaps more urgently for us to consider, we will, at times, let our friends down without question. And we may have seasons of life when, if we're honest, we're actually not too sure how many friends we really have. I've mentioned uh, Dane Ortland's book to you before, Gentle and Lowly, and this is what he writes in that book. He says, all our human friendships have a limit to what they can withstand. But what, and here we're turning to the scriptures, returning to Jesus, but what if there were a friend with no limit, no ceiling on what he would put up with and still want to be with you? And then, Ortland underlining that my first re reflexive answer of, of Jesus is not just a throwaway answer, but is wonderful beyond our wildest dreams. Dane Ortland quotes Richard Sibbs, one of the Puritans who wrote in 1639, this is the quote, all kinds and degrees of friendship meet in Christ. What if there were a friend with no limit, no ceiling on what he would put up with and still want to be with you? All kinds and degrees of friendship meet in Christ. I don't know how much you think of Jesus as your friend. Well, one of the things that seems clear in our passage today is that Jesus had friends. And maybe you say, well, that's not the most profound insight, Martin. Thank you. Of course, Jesus, you know, Jesus cared for all people, right? Yes, he was there for all people. Yes, he was known as the friend of sinners. But it also seems that there were some who had a particularly close relationship with Jesus. And it's a very precious thing when we come across this. I, I love this little insight that we get in John 11 into the humanity of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus had a few besties? Anyone use that language? You're my bestie? Well, Jesus had some besties, which just makes me so happy to think about. 
Um, one of the things that we'll see today is even with that context, Jesus was, was no normal friend. Yes, he's someone we can meet like that, but, but of course he's so much more. We're going to see that today. But let's look firstly at this idea of the friendship we can have in Jesus. Let's read again the first couple of verses of John chapter 11. This is God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, this event, which has just been referred to there in verse 2, isn't actually recorded until the following chapter. We're going to look at it in John 12 in a couple of weeks. But the way it's written here suggests that John expects his readers to know who this family are, at least Martha and Mary. You see, Lazarus is, is sort of introduced, but Martha and Mary, it's almost like you're meant to know who they are. And this is, of course, the same Mary and Martha of Luke chapter 10. You remember Martha who was worried about preparing things and was anxious about getting everything right for Jesus, coming to visit their home, compared with Mary, who wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus and, and learn from him. But we see in this passage a few aspects of the friendship Jesus had with this family. So let's, look at, let's keep reading verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This is touching language, right? He whom you love is ill. Now, of course, Jesus loved all people, but there seems to be something special here, unique, because let's keep going. It's underlined in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You know, yes, Jesus loves all people, but John wants us to know, hey, just be aware, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. We see this again in verse 11, where Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This word friend here is a very rare word in the New Testament, and this is the only place it's used as a sort of direct way of referencing this unique relationship that Jesus had with this specific person, Lazarus. Now, Scott's going to continue this story next week, but if we can just look at a couple of the verses from that passage, we see the same thing in the second half of the chapter. Look at verse 33. When Jesus sees Mary weeping and upset, it says there in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And, and, and Scott's going to dig into a little bit of the, the, the remarkable phrase that that is, that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And then this is, uh, sorry, I've lost, lost my place here, sorry. Uh, this is also repeated in verse 38, this idea of Jesus being deeply moved again in his spirit. We see then also in verse 35, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, probably because it's easy to memorize, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He, the King of Kings himself, weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus. And all this to the extent that others look on and can see the love that Jesus had for this family. Look at verse 36 with me, would you please? So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
this family, they were Jesus' friends. And this is a beautiful thing for us to ponder, friendship with Jesus. When we think of Christ, we should rightly feel a little overwhelmed. And we should rightly feel a lot in awe as we ponder the wonder of who Jesus is. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the one in whom, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. It's good to always soak in that and never lose the wonder of that. But at the same time, let's not lose the wonder and the joy of the humanity and intimacy of Jesus, that he was present in heartfelt love and in friendship and in care and emotion with people. I don't know if any of you have watched the, uh, I say TV show, it's on streaming platforms, you can watch it for free uh, if you, anywhere really, uh, it's called The Chosen and it documents the life of Jesus, and it's, it's very well done, and it's very faithful to the scriptures, and we're only in season two. I think they're finishing season three at the moment, but, but I have found the TV show, The Chosen, to be very, very helpful in terms of my appreciation of this idea of the closeness and the humanity of Jesus. I think it displays wonderfully the smile and the joy and the relationality of Christ, how he hung out with people, he cared for people, he received hospitality, and that the sharing of food was a huge part of how Jesus lived and loved. And of course, that was one of the things that people accused him of. Look how he goes and eats and drinks with the riffraff of society as they understood them to be. And this idea of sharing food with Jesus is something that I, I like to ponder sometimes. Um, one of the things that we talk about in our family sometimes is an idea, just total speculation, okay? Bear with me here. An idea of how we might share love and friendship with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's the idea that one of the ways that we might serve Jesus in the new creation, one of the ways that we might enjoy his presence is to invite him round for a meal and to prepare a favorite meal that you have for Jesus one day in the new heavens and the new earth and to serve that meal to him. I suspect we could all think of a favorite dish, maybe something that was made for us as we were growing up. So for me, my late mom, she made the best shepherd's pie and the best lasagna. And those just warm my heart as I think about those. And for us in our family, uh, it's all Lindsay that does the cooking, I have to say, not me. But Lindsay, we, and we, we've chatted about this as a family. If Jesus were to come for dinner, what would we make for him? And we said, well, you, we would start with your roast red pepper soup, Lindsay and then we'd have your chili with chorizo for a main course and then we'd have key lime pie for dessert and we love to, to think about this what would we serve Jesus were he to come round for, a heaven, for, for dinner in heaven and the idea is that Jesus might spend eternity going round and hanging out in the billions of homes of those who share in his life
life. And the idea is that Jesus might get to enjoy the best meals that were our favorites in this life. And we'll get to enjoy seeing his face as we have a chance to serve the one who served us. You know, do you ever think of heaven like that? I mean, I have no idea if that's going to happen. I have no idea what that's going to look like. But do you know that we're going to be spending eternity with Jesus? And yes, of course, as part of that, we will be gathered around the throne room in heaven. And we will be singing and we will be praising and adoring him. But we will also live with fully alive, glorified bodies in a redeemed creation with perfect ingredients and and who knows, maybe even glorified cooking utensils and infinite creativity and desire to share that with others, not least our Lord and best friend. We will want to know infinite ways to enjoy the presence of Jesus. I'm just wondering if cooking your favorite family meal for Jesus might be one way. So get preparing. He says, he says to himself, Lindsay, <laughs> get ready for that moment. The, the point is this, whatever picture is helpful for you, friendship, presence, nearness, joy, closeness with Jesus. Do you know him as your friend? I think for many of us, we can over time develop a skewed understanding of Jesus. And sometimes we can miss out on this wonderful aspect of his availability in friendship. I think, you know, I mentioned Gentle and Lowly. Probably my my favorite Christian book of the last five years, maybe more, is this book, Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. And I'm going to read a testimony she shares of how she had this skewed understanding of who God was. This is page 168. It says, One night, not long after 2017 drew to a close, that was a, a very difficult year for them as a family, I had a dark and vivid dream. In it, I had a best friend. She was a lovely person in almost every way, and we were inseparable. But midway through the dream, I found out she was a hired assassin. She was generally kind and generous, but occasionally killed some people for work. In the dream, I was reeling, not knowing how I could trust my longtime friend. Then I saw her list of targets, and I was next on the list. She was honest with me about it. She didn't want to kill me, but this was her job. She had a decision to make. I pleaded with her to spare my life, to find another line of work. Then I woke up, bolt upright in a dark room. And then she says, in the silence of the night, I knew the dream was about how I see God. I loved him. I had called him a friend for a long time, but I didn't trust him. He could be so lovely, but he also kept a hit list, and I was on it. The image of God as a hitman shows my own faithlessness, how very little I know of God. God is not like a hitman who despite appearances, harbors hidden malice. If God is out to get us in any way, it is not to destroy us, but to love us. I think many of us can live with this twisted idea of who God is, that he is out to get us. Well, Martha and Mary and Lazarus seem to know wonderful friendship with Jesus. They trusted him. They loved him. And friends, so can we know friendship with Jesus. A few chapters from now, we will read of Jesus saying this explicitly to us. Look at John 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, 
than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. May we know those words over us this morning and today and this evening, if you're able to come to the evening of worship and prayer, I have called you friends. May we come and wonder at and press into this reality, this friendship offered us in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. What a friend we have. Now, moving on. One of the ways we see this friendship expressed is in the trust that Martha puts in Jesus and also the trust that he expects of them. So the friendship we can have, secondly, the trust we can put in Jesus. Writing in the 19th century, Bishop J.C. Ryle makes this connection between friendship and trust. And he's commenting here on verse 3 of our passage. So let's just read it again. The sister sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And this is what J.C. Ryle says about this. Jesus Christ is the Christian's best friend in the time of need. Beautiful, touching, and simple was the message they sent. They did not ask him to come at once or to work a miracle and command the disease to depart. They only said, Lord, he whom you love is sick and left the matter there in the full belief that he would do what was best. Here was the true faith and humility of saints. Here was gracious submission of will. We can rest in the wonder of Jesus as our friend because we can trust him. Now this is not easy. I mean, think of the emotional weight of the situation here. Lazarus is dying and his family are desperate. And the Lord Jesus himself is deeply moved in his spirit. So we're on sacred ground here when we think about these things. This is so challenging for so many followers of Jesus. When this moment comes, this moment of need, this moment of crisis, of bringing this need to Jesus and wondering, can I trust you with this, God? Can't I trust you with what is about to unfold in my life? And, and J.C. Ryle is making the point that all Martha feels the need to do here is just to bring the issue before Jesus, just to be honest with Jesus about what is going on because she knows that she can trust him. We know this isn't easy. I'm sure it wasn't for Martha and it isn't easy for us. And also, this isn't easy because Jesus seems to ask an awful lot of Martha and her family in this passage. Look with me again, please, at verse three and four. The sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness, this illness does not lead to death. 
It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So there's this wonderful promise of life. But then things get strange. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Did you, did you catch that? Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So he stayed where he was for two more days. So, so Lazarus is in Bethany. Jesus is far away. There's a bit of debate as to exactly where Jesus was, but the best estimate is about three to four days' journey away. Jesus is over here. The family want Jesus over there in Bethany. And it says, because Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was, delaying his return. Now, this is confusing right? It doesn't seem to make sense on the face of it. <laughs> so confusing it is that some translations have just changed what is written. So the, the NLT and the message get a yellow card here because people way smarter than me are, are clear that, that the ESV and, and now the NIV, the NIV recently changed this and updated it, that they, that they, that they get this right. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place. That is to say, in light of Jesus' love, he didn't go straight away. He waited for a couple of days. So what on earth is, is going on here? Now, a couple of things we know. First of all, we know that it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care saying it positively. We know that Jesus cares. We've seen how moved he is. We've seen how in turmoil he is about this situation. It's also just worth noting as an aside that taking into account the journey time, the time it would take for them to get to Jesus and for Jesus to return, even if Jesus had left straight when he heard the news of Lazarus getting sick, Lazarus still would have been dead for two days by the time Jesus returns. But you might say, well, yeah, but Martin, there are examples in the Gospels of when Jesus works a miracle from far off. He didn't need to be there, so why didn't he do that here? Now, we'll see why in a moment, but I first want us to just consider for a moment the difficulty of this reality, this story here. And here's my question to us. Will you trust Jesus when the outcome you hope for doesn't come. I mean, let's read a few verses from verse 17. Listen to the longing in Martha's voice. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's the same in verse 32. Mary, it says, she falls at Jesus' feet, saying the same thing. And we can see the way that Jesus is deeply moved by this. But is that enough for you, for us? Are you able to trust that Jesus cares 
even when there is not much obvious evidence of that. Why did you stay those extra days? What's going on, Jesus? Will you trust him when it doesn't seem to make any sense? Now, John includes earlier in the passage a little dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, which I think can help us with this question. Look with me, please, at verse 6 of John 11. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? So there's a similar moment here again. Jesus, what you're doing here doesn't seem to make any sense. This is dangerous. This is not wise. This is not good. This does not fit in with human logic. Why are you going back to the place where they're seeking to stone you? And listen to what Jesus replies. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is saying, remember who you're with. Remember that you're with me. Remember that when you walk with me, you're walking in the light. It may feel as if you are in the dark, sickness, strife, struggle, difficulty, torment, persecution. And if you are in the dark, if you are in the dark, those dangers are very real, Jesus is saying. But he's saying to his disciples, friends, you're walking with me. You do not need to stumble here. Trust in me. Trust in me. Now, why? We can know friendship with Jesus because we trust in him. What is the basis of our trust in Jesus? Well, we can see this further played out in the crux of the story. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is why we can trust Jesus, even in the hardest of circumstances, even if all seems lost, because he is the bringer of life. He's the bringer of life. We can know the friendship of Jesus because we trust him. We can trust him because we know the full reality of Jesus' love, that no matter what comes, he is the life giver. He's the one through whom our ultimate future is safe and secure and full of glory. Friendship, trust, life. The life that we can know through Jesus is our last point. Let's read more of our passage. Let's read from verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, Spoiler alert for next week. Lazarus is coming back. Jesus will raise him from the dead. But here's the thing. 
That is not the ultimate hope we hold on to. You know, even for Lazarus, as amazing as that miracle was, he would come to the point of death again. In some ways, it's kind of hard on Lazarus, right? He was one of a few people across the history of the world who have had to die on this earth twice. Poor Lazarus, you might say. The hope of this passage, the point of it all, is that we would see Jesus for who he truly is, the resurrection and the life. That's why Jesus waits and goes later to raise Lazarus up because he wants us to know who he is most ultimately. He is the one through whom we can know we will never die. Not really, not fully, not ultimately, not finally. This is how we know that we can trust Jesus. Look at verse 4 with me. We can know we can trust Jesus because in him, verse 4 is always true. This illness does not lead to death. One of the things I think is of unfathomable help to us as followers of Jesus is that it is true to say that every believer will be healed of every illness. We can say that with certainty. Now, we need to be so careful because we don't know when that will be. We pray and we could do more of this praying and seeking God and seeking the anointing of oil of the elders. James chapter 5, we, we could press into God and pray that there would be healings and miracles this side of heaven. But God and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness to those who will spend eternity with him sooner, sometimes in his providence, he takes people home. But the other side of heaven, on that final day when our bodies are raised up with redeemed, glorified new creation, we do know that no illness ultimately leads to death for anyone who is alive in Jesus. This is how we know we can trust Jesus. Secondly, in him, verse 11 will always be the reality where Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. This is, I think, the sweetest way to think of what death is in the Christian life. It is perhaps the most common way the New Testament speaks of what we call death. It's what Jesus says of Jairus' daughter. It's what Jesus says here of Lazarus. It's what, it's what is said of Stephen. Even as he's being stoned to death, facing the most horrific death you could imagine, I suspect, or up there, it says he, he, he saw Jesus in, in heaven, committed his spirit to him, and he fell asleep as the stones crushed him. And it's how on multiple occasions the New Testament letters describe death in this life. Those who die in this world in Jesus they're not really dead, not ultimately, not with that ultimate finality that so many assume to be the end of our story. In Jesus, we fall asleep with him. Yes, we're present with him, away from the body, present with the Lord. We're falling asleep one day to be awakened to the newness and perfection of eternal life. This is how we know we can trust him. Finally, in Jesus, his response to Martha in verse 23 is the response we can be certain of for all who trust in Jesus. Your brother will rise again. 
You see, you can trust him, this amazing friend, because the ultimate outcome we need will come to us through Jesus. He is our resurrection. And everyone who lives in him and believes in him shall never really die. And Jesus is saying to this family in this whole chapter, trust in me. Do not trust in some vague spirituality, some vague hope of some sort of eternal life. Is this not what vast numbers of our friends and family hope in? Martha says in verse 24, yeah, yeah, I know there's this idea of this coming resurrection. Jesus said to her, it's not an idea. It's not just a theological belief. It's me. Don Carson writes, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him alone who can provide it. And then I love this quote from Leslie Newbigin. Resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. Resurrection has a living face and a name. Jesus. He's your friend because you can trust him because he is life to all who come to him. And then do you see the cyclical reality of this? Once you know that, once you know that ultimately he has you, that you're safe and secure in him, you can trust him. And when you trust him, you can know him as friend. And when you know him as friend, you know that you can trust him and he brings you life and it's just the beautiful cyclical reality of life with Jesus. Imagine how hard it must have been for this family to know that Jesus didn't seem to come on time. And I know how often we can struggle with this. Jesus didn't come on time. Jesus has let me down. Why did God let this thing happen? Why didn't he intervene? Why am I still struggling with this torment and difficulty, this heartache? What are you waiting on, Jesus? I need you here. Sometimes we say it with tears. Sometimes we say it numb. Sometimes we say it angry. I want you to know this morning, he's coming. He is coming. He's wiser than we can understand. God, forgive us from thinking that we can understand all the wonders of the depth of the, the knowledge and the riches of God's wisdom. If he hadn't waited in John chapter 11, this display of his glory and power in the raising of Lazarus and this wonderful truth that he says, I am the resurrection and the life, it wouldn't have been made known to us. This reminder wouldn't have been recorded for us that Jesus, listen to this, is not about sporadic, time-bounded miracles here and there. Or sometimes not. Let's be honest. What happened to Lazarus is not the norm in our life. That is not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus. The resurrection and the life. It's him. Our life. The one we can trust. Our friend forever. Now, I know this is hard. As we close, please let me extend the challenge of J.C. Ryle. Who writes on this passage. And it's a challenging question for all of us. Nothing so helps us to bear patiently the trials of life 
as an abiding conviction of the perfect wisdom by which everything, is ar- everything around us is managed. We are all naturally impatient in the day of trial. We forget that Christ is too wise a physician to make any mistakes. It is the duty of faith to say, my times are in your hand. Do with me as you will, how you will, what you will, and when you will. Not my will, but thine be done. The highest degree of faith is to be able to wait, sit still, and not complain. And then listen to this quote. The hand that was nailed to the cross is too wise and loving to allow pain without a needs be or to keep us waiting for relief without a cause. May we, dear friends, today, this coming week, may we sit with trust and with love with our friend and king, our resurrection and our life, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. I'm just going to invite you to say in your heart these words of J.C. Ryle. Spirit of God, I just pray that you would enable us now to bring our hearts to you with this earnest profession of faith. My times are in your hand. Do with me as you will, how you will, what you will, and when you will. Not my will, but thine be done. Thank you, Father in heaven, for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, our friend and king. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust your timing. Help us to know you're for us. You're there for us. And in Jesus, we are safe and secure and alive. For now, through any trial this week, and forevermore with you in eternity. Draw near to us, we ask in Jesus' name.